Good morning and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. We really are delighted that you've been able to join with us today. Um, as we've uh, increased uh, numbers, it's been great to welcome uh, not a huge amount of extra people from what we've had before, but still all the more encouraging to see more and more people coming into the church here. And I want to take a moment to welcome all of you watching at home, watching online. Uh, you're very welcome here as well, and we trust that you're going to be blessed by what we share together in this service. We're going to turn to our Bible reading now, which you will find in Isaiah chapter 49. Last week, we began a short series considering what are known as, as the servant songs in the book of Isaiah. They are a series of four short sections in the latter half of this big book where God reveals to His rebellious people how He's going to restore them, and not merely from their captivity in a foreign land, but how He's going to rescue them from their sin how he's going to bring them back to himself. This is about restoring the relationship between God and his people. And last week we saw the first song in Isaiah 42 where God presents his servant. And we saw that this servant had this, this mission to bring justice, to make the world as it should be to rescue people from slavery and from blindness. And we saw that he would do that in gentleness, that he would restore broken lives, not crush them. And we saw that this great rescuer is the Lord Jesus Christ. These servant songs are about him. Well, in the second song, which we're going to hear now, we get some more. But this time, we hear from the lips of the servant himself. And Rachel's going to read those words for us. Morning. Um, so the reading is Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 13. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is the Lord's hand, and my reward is with God. Now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up, princes will see and bow down, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says, 
In the time of my favour I will answer you, and in the day of salvation I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, to say to captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north and some from the west, some from the region of Sinim. Shout out for joy, O heavens, rejoice, O earth, burst into song, O mountains, for the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Thank you. Well, there's nothing quite like hearing it firsthand. I mean, if a friend came to you and said that they've heard this exciting new musician, uh, she has this wonderful voice, her songwriting is powerful and meaningful, this is the best artist I've heard in the last 20 years. Well, you would, presumably, you'd be interested. And you would take your friend's word for it, that there's something here worth looking into. But you wouldn't be jumping up and down with excitement yet, would you? Not quite. Not until you heard her for yourself. You'd want to hear the artist. You don't want to just hear about her. You want to hear her. And what Isaiah does for us in this part of his prophetic book is he gives us these multiple angles We're gradually being fed more and more information on what God's plans are for his people. And his plans are big. We're going to see that again today. But they find their focal point in this servant. In the first song, we heard about the servant. God introduced them to us. But in this song, we hear the servant himself. He speaks. God's servant speaks. And what a crucial perspective that is to hear, to hear him. And I want to very quickly get you to notice who the servant wants to speak to. This is in verse 1. Who does he want to speak to? Listen to me, O coastlands or O islands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. Is the message that this servant is going to deliver, is it just for the people who live in Jerusalem? No, it's not. Is it just for the people who live in Israel? No, it's not. It is to go to the farthest reaches of the earth. That's what that language means. And so straight away, each one of us here are being told, you need to hear this. The servant, when he speaks these words, he's speaking to you, residents of the northeast of Scotland even. Very easy for us, isn't it, to think that when we come to the Bible, that it's not really for me. Maybe it was for them. Maybe it's for someone else. 
Well, here we're being told, this is for you. It is never the case that God's message of how He's going to bring back people to Himself is somehow more suitable for other people than it is for you. This is for you. This is the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, and He's speaking so that you would hear Him. And what God's servant does here is He begins by sharing His his testimony, His story. He tells us in verse 1 about how He was called by God. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother He named my name. He's telling us here that it was God's, it was God in His sovereignty that made this calling. You see, what's, what's, what's being presented is that it wasn't the idea that this servant somehow uh, graduated to earn this position of being the servant. There's not a hint here that he had to fill in an application for the job and it was all considered. And certainly no application here that somehow he, he forced his way into this role, that presumptuously the servant took on the role of being God's servant. No, he says he was called by God even before he was born. And this is the sort of way that, that God speaks about how he calls his prophets in Scripture. If you were to go back to, to Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah the prophet is told, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. And so here, the servant is this prophet-like figure who God had been preparing even before he was born to fulfill this role. And that's confirmed for us by the way that God equips him in verse 2. This is part of the testimony. So he was called from the womb. Verse 2, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. God doesn't put a sword into the hand of the servant. The sword are the words that comes from his mouth. Sharp words that penetrate to the deepest part of a person. Later in the same verse, um, he says, he made me a polished arrow, which carries that same sort of idea, doesn't it? Something that penetrates deeply. And the testimony of the Bible itself is that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That's where these sharp words go, to the heart. He speaks the very words of God. And in keeping with what we saw last time, we turn to the Gospels. And when Jesus is in the womb of Mary, then the Lord speaks to both Mary and Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus. And specifically to Joseph, you'll call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is why he came into the world. This is the calling that was on him. Later on in the book of Revelation, when the Apostle John sees the risen and glorified Christ, he says, out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. 
God called him, God equipped him, and throughout verse 2 as well, God commits to keep him. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. In his quiver, he hid me away. And those two things go together, the Word of God on his lips and the protecting hand of God on his life. Because there is nothing that draws forth opposition, both fierce and forceful, quite like lips that proclaim the Word of God. And we see God's servant has the biggest mission God's servant shares his testimony, and then we see God's servant has the biggest mission. You see this from verse 4 down to verse 7. A big part, we start in verse 3, actually. God says, the testimony is, he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This sums up the entirety of God's mission. In fact, it's, it's bigger than that. Those words in verse 3 sum up the entirety of why God ever does anything at all, that He might be glorified. Repeatedly in Scripture, we read that God acts according to His good pleasure, that He might glorify His great name. This is the supreme goal of everything that God does. And it was indeed the greatest ambition of Christ himself. In John chapter 12, the Lord Jesus is trying to tell his disciples about his death that is coming. John tells us that it troubled Jesus, that he had this, this, this dilemma about what he should pray. And here's what he prayed. Father, glorify your name. And John tells us, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And in saying that, those words of the Father were pointing to the cross where Jesus was going to die. There he would glorify God. You may have noticed in verse 3 that the servant there is called Israel, which might lead you to think that, well, maybe this is just a picture of the nation of Israel. But as the servant's mission is revealed here, we see that's, that's not the case. Look at the servant's words in verse 5. Why did the Lord form the servant in the womb? To bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. So you see, um, the servant is called Israel, but his mission is to gather Israel back to God. It's a little confusing, isn't it? Well, the way to understand that is that the servant being called Israel, he's closely associated with Israel. In fact, he is the fulfillment of everything that God had called the nation of Israel to be. And his mission is to restore God's people. Not just to make them a materially prosperous nation again, but to restore their relationship to God. 
to save them from their sins. But verse 6 tells us that there's more than just that. And I think verse 6 is a beautiful verse. Because it's as if in verse 6, God looks on the servant and he beholds the supreme qualities that this servant has. He sees all of the potential that lies in his servant. And in effect, he says to him, if you were what I used to restore the nation of Israel, then that would be a glorious thing. But it would sell you short. I mean, that's what he says, isn't it? Verse 6, it's too light a thing, too small a thing, that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. It's as if God says, well, that's not enough. The servant is so wonderful. His mission needs to be bigger than just rescuing this tiny nation. And so he says, I will make you as a light for the nations, a light to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Oh, this passage is about more than a, than a warm message to a handful of Jews who are captive in Babylon. It's about saving people from every nation. And now you see, don't you, why? In verse 1, the servant said, I want to speak to all of you. I want to speak to people from afar, not just people who are Jewish. I want to speak to all of you because this is the mission of the servant. And it all sounds so straightforward, doesn't it? But it won't be. For the Messiah here in this song speaks of his own discouragements. Listen to his experience in verse 4. He speaks and he says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. You can add to this the description that's given of the servant in verse 7. He is described there as one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. This is not a mission that will be characterized by wall-to-wall prosperity, popularity. This will not be a non-stop victory parade from beginning to end. It is met with severe opposition. His mission is met with hard hearts. Indeed, you can read through the Gospels and several times in the ministry of Christ, he expresses this sentiment here that we see in verse 4. That time where he looked out over the city of Jerusalem and he wept. And why? Well, he says, because how I longed to gather you under my wing, but you would not. Times when he expressed exasperation at the lack of faith among those who had walked with him for years. It felt at times as if there was nothing to show for his proclaiming the message about the kingdom of God. 
But that's not where the servant's words end. Still in verse 4, he says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity yet. Nevertheless, surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense or my work is with my God. This is where God's servant is not like you or I. The blows of rejection encountering the faithlessness of those he's trying to reach, do not overwhelm him. They do not divert him from the mission. It is those very reminders about his calling. And how he puts it in verse 5, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant. This reminder of how God has been fitting him to be the servant, that he's honored in the eyes of God, that God is his strength. It is that that enables him, that assures him he can carry on. God's called him to do this mission. God's equipped him to do this task. How can the mission fail? However hard it might be to see God working now, God's mission will be accomplished. That's the perspective that this servant is able to have, blow after blow after blow. And because of that, what is the theme of verses 8 through to 12? Well, the theme is this, mission will be accomplished. The mission will be accomplished. Because you see straight away in verse 8, the Lord answers the servant's prayer. In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. We saw this last week in chapter 42 of Isaiah. And here again, we see it, that God's Messiah is more than just a spokesperson for God. He doesn't just come and tell them, here's what God's going to do. He doesn't just come and tell them what they must do to get back to God. This servant, God's promised Messiah, is actually himself the, the embodiment of their salvation. He himself is the promise from God that they belong to him. Throughout the Bible, those who belong to God are those who are part of his covenant people. God makes this covenant, this promise to his people. It is, it's those who are included in the promise that he promises to be their God, to bless them. And here, this message goes out again, not just to the descendants of Abraham, to the ends of the earth, that God's servant, the Messiah, is a covenant to the people. For all who come and put their trust in him, then he is their promise that they belong to God. He is the assurance that they are right with God. He is the guarantee that their sins are forgiven and that they have God's promise that they will dwell with God forever. But when the Messiah came, he revealed that this wasn't the sort of promise that was sealed by signing your name on a piece of paper. 
He put it like this as he instituted the Lord's Supper. These words are from Matthew 26. Matthew tells us, he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Blood of the covenant poured out for many. This is what it costs. This is what it costs for you to be right with God. It doesn't cost you. It costs the Son of God, God's servant. He sheds his blood on the cross, and through his death, all who come to him are given life given a glorious destiny with God. And that's what's described in the remaining verses that we've read together this morning. God here uses the language of of the Exodus. You may recall that God's people were in slavery in Egypt, And Moses is sent as God's representative to to lead them out of slavery and bring them to the promised land. Well, that's the sort of imagery here. Let me just point out some things. We don't have time to go into this in detail, but let me just point out some of the key things that God promises to do for those who belong to him through the work of his servant. Verse 9, he promises to liberate them says to the prisoners, come out. He says to those who are in darkness, appear. He liberates them from their slavery. And then from there, it's as if you have the journey back, the journey back to where God dwells, the journey to the promised land. And what does he promise still? Verse 9, he promises to provide everything they need. They shall feed along the ways on all on all bare heights shall be their pasture. Into verse 10, he promises to protect them. They won't hunger or thirst. The scorching wind and the sun shall not strike them. And then still in verse 10, he promises to give personal direction to them. He who has pity on them will lead them by springs of water will guide them. And this is, this is the language that David would use, isn't it? In Psalm 23, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That's the sort of promise that God is making to all who will come to him through this servant. And what's beautiful about this is that this journey is not just made from Egypt to Canaan. It's not even just made from Babylon to Jerusalem. This journey is made from every corner of the earth back to the living God. God will make paths where you would never have imagined they could exist. That's what he says in verse 11. I'll make all my mountains a road and my highways shall be raised up. He's saying, people will come to me from places that you would never have believed possible. Such is the work of this servant. 
those from afar in verse 1 who were called to sit up and listen to God's servant. Look at them in verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar. They'll come from north and west. They'll come from the land of Sain or from Sinim, which seems to be uh, a way of saying some far-off country, kind of ill-defined. I suppose the way we used to perhaps speak about from here to Timbuktu, you know, that kind of idea. And this is what Jesus has come to do. And I guess as you read those verses, the assurance to every one of you here today who belongs to Jesus Christ, who has entrusted their soul to him, is this, you'll make it home. You will make it home. However tricky the terrain looks from here to there, you will make it home. Keep trusting in God's servant. This song is, is quoted a couple of times in the New Testament. I want to take time to just mention one of those. It's quoted by the Apostle Paul when he's in a place called uh, Antioch. Paul and Barnabas are there. They're preaching in the synagogue for a week or two. And uh, some people become Christians, but, but then the Jews start to argue with them. Listen to what they say. This is Acts 13. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to you Jews first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You see, Paul and Barnabas met opposition from the Jews, and this verse in Isaiah 49 came to their mind. Verse 6, God is speaking to his servant and says to him, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Now, you could argue, um, are, are Paul and Barnabas not very good at reading their Bible? Because God didn't say those words to them. God said that his Messiah would be the light to the nations, not these apostles. But Paul and Barnabas realized something that every Christian needs to realize. The mission of the Messiah becomes the mission of of his followers. God has made Jesus a light to the nations, and we are grateful for that. If not, we wouldn't be here. And that's what we're to declare. As his representatives, we too are to be a light to the nations, that salvation may reach the ends of the earth. That's how God has told us he will do it, through his people telling others who will tell others who will tell others. And the gospel has moved a long way from Jerusalem 2,000 years ago to where it is today. 
But you just need to look in your own community today to see that it still has quite a ways to go. And as we grasp this mission that has been given to God's servant, the Messiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we want to be reflecting that mission in what we're doing, what we're giving our lives to, how we're spending our time. But did you notice that when I read from Acts 13, that when the Gentiles heard these guys say, we're going to take this gospel out of the synagogue and we're going to take it to those who aren't descendants of Abraham, the Gentiles began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And this is where our reading in Isaiah 49 ended. Because it's as if Isaiah says to us, you can't understand all of this. You can't begin to, to hear about what the servant says, about what his calling is, what his mission is, about the certainty of it being accomplished, and not end up where he ends up in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens. Exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. It's as if he says, this is, this is earth-shattering news. Let the mountains scream out that this is what God has done in his servant. And it is incumbent upon us as a first response always to understanding more of the Lord Jesus, to seeing some other angle on the Lord Jesus Christ than his glorious work to restore us to God is to respond with rejoicing. And now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. May the Lord be with you all in Jesus' name.